Our scripture this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I can change the world with my own two hands, make it a better place with my own two hands, make it a kinder place with my own two hands, with my can make peace on earth with my own two hands. I can clean up the earth with my own two hands. I can reach out to you with my own two hands. With my own, with my own two Welcome to the third in our series of sermons called Advent and Songs You Know. I wonder how many of you actually know that one? So there's like four or five of you that actually know that one. That's by Jack Johnson and Ben Harper. With my own two hands. I can clean up the earth with my own two hands. I can reach out to you with my own two hands. I can make the world a brighter place with my own two hands. I like that song. Maybe you think it a little on the nose, a bit cheesy. I'm not sure, but for me, it's such a simple, sweet-sounding song that packs an incredibly large, powerful message about how sometimes it's the simplest forms of kindness and gentleness that can move the needle in this world. We're going to try to tap into the spirit of that song as we think about this text this morning on this third Sunday of Advent. Amen? Let's do the exercise that we've been doing over these past months of taking a moment of quiet breathing. I want you to breathe in and exhale all the air from your lungs so that when you breathe in, you sense that you're breathing in the very breath of God. And then we'll pray together. Exhale. Breathe in the breath of God. God of all life, we're so thankful to be gathered here today. As we journey through Advent to the Nativity, we ask that you meet us here in all that we do, and in all that we think, and all the words we pray and sing. Heavenly Father, whether anyone else here knows it or not, you and I know that without you I can do nothing, so we ask 
for your Holy Spirit to be in this most sacred of places and everywhere anyone can hear my voice so that your message could ring true. Take these words from St. Paul as he writes them to the church at Philippi and make them live freshly in our hearts, giving us steps forward, not just through Advent, but through the journey of our lives. It is in the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Christ the Lord, we pray, and God's people say together, Amen. Amen. When I was a kid, I used to have a terrible time on December the 24th. It was the longest day on the calendar for me. As I woke up that day, I knew it was just that one full day left until I got to wake up on Christmas morning, run to the tree and open up just so many presents. It seemed like time would just sit still as I waited in anticipation for that coming day. I remember one December the 24th, I was given a little help by the calendar. You see, that Christmas Eve fell on a Sunday, which meant that the good morning bit of my day was swallowed up in church. At the end of worship, Santa Claus showed up in the fellowship hall. I guess he wasn't busy anywhere else on Christmas Eve. He brought us all paper lunch sacks, you know, those sacks that you pack for school. And each one of us got like an orange, an apple, and a pear, and a banana. My church's Santa was sort of cheap. As we ate these effects on the way from home to, or way to church, from, way from church to home, I began to strategize with my siblings about how we could make this day go faster. And so we told my mom, we're going to go to bed early tonight. You see, I know that time doesn't speed up when you sleep, but my experience of it does. So we're going to go to bed earlier, so that means that we don't have to have that agony of waiting and anticipation I think my mom was happy to hear that we were going to bed early. She just didn't know what we were thinking. I had in mind that maybe I would hit the hay at around 3 p.m. <laughs> Began running laps around the house trying to wear myself out. My mom smiled and said, honey, you're not going to go to sleep at 3 p.m. We have stuff to do. Every year at Christmas Eve, we used to pack up plates full of baked goods that my mom would make, and we'd go visit neighbors and family members and friends. My dad used to love taking us to the mall so we could watch people in agony stress shop, knowing that our shopping had been done for some time. It was just kind of a feeling of superiority for the moment. We did all these things, and we knew we had more to go. It wasn't bedtime yet. We had our annual Christmas Eve tea party where there was, you know, hors d'oeuvres and tea and, you know, the whole thing. People stopping by. I just kept looking at the clock, and it seemed like a minute would last about an hour. And finally, we had to sit in my dad's lap as he read A Night Before Christmas, and my mom videoed it on a camcorder. Because I grew up in that era when you had a camcorder, you videoed everything, never to watch it again. I'm sure if you went back and watched this year, you would see me sitting on my dad's lap, fidgeting, waiting, hurrying him along, rolling my eyes, trying to get to bed. Finally, I was released to my slumbers. And I remember being woken up in the middle of the night, my sister and my brother standing over me shaking, saying, Santa had come. 
was so excited. I leapt out of bed, ran down the hallway, and I saw a mountain of presence. It was so mountainous, there was caverns. I even remember there was a new Christmas decoration in the room that Santa must have brought. It, it was this angel, and it had a, had a fake candle, and it moved like this, kind of creepily. Just. I got to know that angel well, and I'll tell you why in a moment. We tried to get my parents up. It was 1 a.m. And I could hear my dad from down the hallway, go back to bed. And so my siblings, who were probably much better behaved than I, they went back to bed, and I knew there was only one thing I could do. A boy with this much anticipation and excitement, I had to sleep with the presents. I got my blanket and my pillow out, and I began to spoon with boxes. I couldn't take my imagination away from what could be in these packages. And I watched that little angel doll thing do this. For what seemed like hours, five minutes had gone by. And then I hear my dad say from down the hall, go back to bed or I'm going to wait till after breakfast. So we went back to bed and waited the agony, all the anticipation for opening presents together. What do you do when you anticipate something so very, very much, but have no idea when it will come? What do you do? How do you comport yourself when you're excited, but you don't know when what you're hoping for will be fulfilled? In today's lectionary readings, there's a gospel passage that fits that kind of theme. See, the disciples have been walking around with Christ, with Jesus. They understand Jesus to be this Messiah figure, the one coming to do a new thing from God in their world. And he's been saying things about the future, and they have an imagination about what it might look like for when God's rule and reign hovered over their time and place perfectly without any hindrance, and they were excited about the potentials, full of anticipation, you see, the disciples are not unlike you and I. They had tasted the kingdom of God. They have been touched by Christ, and the grace of Christ had touched their lives. Yet, they wait in anticipation for that time when it will all come rushing in in full. They wait for the time when Christ says, Behold, I make all things new. They wait for its fulfillment. That's really the place where discipleship lives. And what do you do when you're excited about it, but you don't know when and how exactly it will all come to pass? How do you comport yourself? St. Paul's a lot of help. In our text this morning, he writes to a church that's undergoing a lot. He writes from a prison cell, and he writes a, in such a way to teach them how to live in between these times, the time when you've been touched by the grace of Christ, yet you wait for it in full. Let's remember what he said by rereading it. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts 
and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a well-worn verse of Scripture. In fact, I didn't need to read it. This was drilled into my mind as a child in Sunday school and vacation Bible school and youth group, almost as a, as a tonic for the travails of the modern world. Such a well-worn text. What does it say? How does Paul tell disciples to live after having been touched by the grace of Christ, yet are awaiting it in full? Well, the first thing St. Paul says is rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say it. You've heard me say this before, but like St. Paul, I think it bears repeating. Writing in the first century world was no simple thing. We are all very spoiled with simple text messaging or emailing, even writing a card, taking a pen and paper, putting a stamp on it and dropping it into a mailbox is really not that big of a deal today. But in the ancient world, whether you had a papyrus or you had vellum, the cost of writing was a lot larger than it is now. And it's not like there was a postal service. Here is St. Paul, probably in Rome, probably in, under house arrest, probably not in cavernous open space kitchens, but in rooms that had low ceilings and low light quality, maybe next to a candle, as he sat there writing with ink on vellum. And then he had to hand it to somebody who's going to take this bit of mail over mountains across rivers, maybe over the sea. And it was going to be read aloud to a community. Writing was an incredible social and economic expense. It cost so much, in fact, if you were to fly to the British Library right now, which if you're ever in London, do yourself a favor, go there and go into the rare book room. Under glass, you can see Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Alexandrinus. These are two of the oldest most reliable New Testament manuscripts that we have, and you can just look at it in Greek. One thing you'll notice is there are no spaces between words. Now, you and I, when we write or we read a book, we see spaces between words so that we can easily differentiate where a word begins and ends, correct? Even if you had a Greek New Testament right in your back pocket, as I'm assuming some of you do right now, there would be spaces between words and sentences. But in these old manuscripts, the words just kind of run together. Why do you suppose that is? I see a lot of you doing this, and someone did this. That's funny. Yes, there was the economy factor. You didn't want to waste space if it costs so much to write. Because of that truth, it strikes me as fascinating that St. Paul would write this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. If he's going to spare no expense, it must be important to Paul. You see, I think at the heart of any solid Christian disciple's life is gratitude. You might say that gratitude is a precondition for faith, and maybe we can go further. Gratitude is a precondition for proper living. One can't live rightly without the acknowledgement of the fact that you're not accountable for your life, that your life has been given to you. 
and that it is the gift of so many others and the world around you and, dare I say, God, that you even have being at all. One can't live rightly without starting with gratitude. Paul says to people who are in a tough spot, as he's in a tough spot, they can't let the toughness get in the way of their rejoicing. You ever met a brother or sister in Christ who went through something so terrible or difficult, yet they weren't going to let it stand in the way of their joy or their celebration? Doing so means that you have a hope that transcends your present moment. When I was first called to be the senior minister of this church, one of the first things that we had to do was close our daycare facility downstairs, and that was absolutely excruciating. It's excruciating to say goodbye to teachers and students and parents that you love and know. It's excruciating because my children were there, involved in the program, but also it upset people. People were hurt. Several Sundays, I saw people come and to church to protest this thing that happened. There was some intimidation. There's lots of angry phone calls and meetings. And quite frankly, I wondered what I got myself into. I remember it went right through Thanksgiving. And I felt like I just kind of beat down like a beaten dog. And into Advent, I think God spoke to me through my, one of my favorite Christmas carols. I was listening to it on Spotify in my study And it's that song, Carol of the Bells. Are you familiar with it? The second or third line, and it says, cast or throw cares away. Christmas is here. Bring in the cheer. It says, throw cares away. I thought to myself, if there's any truth to this Jesus that I believe in, then it means that I can throw my cares away and truly honor and celebrate his coming into the world. It's a lesson in that for me. I think there's a lesson in it for all of us disciples who've been touched by Jesus, yet are waiting for the fulfillment. Don't forget to rejoice, to be people of joy. Let gratitude fill your heart. Then St. Paul says something that rather bugs me. And it bugs me because I haven't gotten a handle on it, and I don't feel bad admitting that to you. St. Paul says the Lord is near, so don't worry. Hmm. Again, my least favorite bit, not because I don't want the idea of the peace of Christ transcending my understanding to befall me. No, I want that. It's just hard for me because I tend toward worrying. If you're one of those folks who've walked out in the world and just told people to give it to God or not to worry, that's not quite helpful. If you're like me and you read this, it's like saying to somebody else, don't think of a white elephant. When I tell you not to think of a white elephant, chances are it made you think of a white elephant, right? So when I read something like this and it says, don't worry, my mind goes like this. Oh yes, I gotta worry about something. It reminds me that maybe I uh, forget, forgotten my worries and I need to get back to them for some reason. I know it's crazy, but we all are crazy. You see, friends, we are called to realize that no matter where we are in our journey, God is still very close to us. 
And it's worth trying everything in our being to trust and cast our cares upon our God, who says, I'm with you. I remember being in a former congregation giving an offering meditation, and I was talking about how the ministry that Colleen and I were in charge of was growing too large. Can you imagine that? A minister complaining that too many people are coming? I was. It was too large for the space that we had. It was in our home. We talked about how if we divided up this group that it would kill the group, and so we didn't know what to do, and I was just kind of going on and on and on about it. And after the service, somebody pulled me over and said, uh, tell me more about your situation, and I explained the situation, how many people were coming, our space constraints. And that person looked at me with a wry smile and with sarcasm said something like this, oh yes, pastor, I forgot we do serve a God who's incapable of doing everything. Ouch. They're right. If we believe in a God that we say we believe in, it calls for us to trust. It calls for us to lean into that trust and realize the fact that God is not far off, but God is always ever-present and near to us. Paul gives lots of great advice for living in between these times. I skipped over the one that I like to lean into most now, gentleness. St. Paul says, let your gentleness be evident to all. What should a Christian believer do who's been touched by the grace of Christ, yet is waiting for Christ to come again and make all things new? Well, if nothing else, a Christian believer ought to be so gentle it is evident to the wider world. Recently, I read an essay with a group of our members about gentleness, and the author of the essay begins by asking if we really praise gentleness or really care about gentleness at all in our culture. Sure, I mean, we like to say we do. And you can go to Pier 1 and get the fruits of the Spirit on some piece of wood and hang it up in your house, but, but do we really, really value gentleness? Think about the people we praise in our world. The author is saying we praise people who get the job done. We can excuse business leaders. We can excuse politicians, too who act in all kinds of terrible, 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 terrible ways because we perceive them as getting the job done. The author goes on further and argues that gentleness does in fact work, but that doesn't mean it's an end, a means to an end. Gentleness itself is an end unto itself. He says we must first affirm gentleness because of the, the fact that I've already brought up. The fact that you and I did not make up our lives out of nothing. That our lives are a gift. And that it's the gentleness or the nurture or the care of so many others who've given us existence. <laughs> you and I need people to treat us gently for us to thrive. And therefore, it's proof that we need to treat others with a certain kind of gentle care so that they may thrive. Oh, it's needed, my friends. It's needed everywhere in our world. And when it's done well, I can say this. When gentleness is done right, it is only from those who are strong who do it. It's from real strength that gentleness flows. Many of you have already judged me this morning for not wearing my robe. 
but I'm wearing a cardigan for a reason. I did wear my, my blue scarf to match my friends and their stoles today, but I wore this cardigan in honor of a person that I admire, that you all know I admire, Mr. Fred Rogers. I love Mr. Rogers. I think everybody should love Mr. Rogers. I've heard him be made fun of in my lifetime as being a bit weak or square, milk toast. And I say anything but. Absolutely wrong. Missed the point. It's just one episode, and it's reflected in this essay. Mr. Rogers brings a young man. I believe he has ALS. He's in a wheelchair. His name's Jeff. Jeff can't get into the house in the neighborhood, so Mr. Rogers comes out to the front steps and sits down with him, and he begins having a real straight conversation with Jeff about his life and about what ails him. He asks him if he feels blue sometimes, and the little boy says, yes, but I don't feel blue now. He talked to him like he had agency. He talked to him with dignity. He didn't look over him. And then he sang a song to him. It was a famous song that was on the Mr. Rogers show many times called, It's You I Like. And the song is all about liking a person for who they are. I don't like you because of the cool things you have, but I like you for who you are. And he sang it to this boy and he told him, even in the song, he changed one of the lyrics and he said, and it's not because of your fancy chair. It's you I like. Then he asked this boy to pray for him. Would you pray for me, Jeff? Someone asked Rogers about that, and he said that he figured that a person like Jeff who had gone through what he had gone through must have known God better than he did. It's only gentleness that will take you to insights of truth like that. What are they going to say about the church after 2020, 2021? Got to be honest, not saying good things. The world and Christians too have been, has not been acting the way it should. But if they say anything at all, if the world looks at us at all, let it say those are the people who were gentle in the world. They lived gently in this world. They spoke to one another and to others with kindness. They could change the world with their own two hands. They can make it a better place, their own two hands. They can reach out to each other with their own two hands. If you've been touched by Jesus, you ought to be gentle. If you've been waiting for Jesus to come make all things new, you ought to be gentle. There is no other business that we should be about than gentle love. Have a contemplative advent.